I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For over 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this podcast, we unlock the stories of people's lives through the stories of what they wore. These aren't conversations about fashion. These are conversations about people. Thank you for joining us for season two of What We Wore. Here are some of our favorite moments. Jane Pendry, Booth Moore, and Tawny Goodman shared the evolution of fashion journalism. W had an in and out list, which <laughs> appeared every year around Christmas, I think. Uh-huh. And the way we'd have to send a list from Paris of what we thought was in and out. And the way that we do that with everybody would be in what actually these tiny offices, kind of with our feet up on the thing, we get in about five bottles of champagne, get <laughs> roaring drunk and just kind of decide what was in and out. And it could be as random as Barrette's. Guerlain soap is in. <laughs> you know why? We don't know. But the famous time about that was we decided that Giorgio Armani was out. And Giorgio Armani oh, happened God. to be one of the most major advertisers for both WWD and W. And the newspaper appeared. And <laughs> surprisingly, they pulled all of their advertising. That did not go um, very well. And the funny thing is, is that it's not like we put this in the newspaper. We put this on the list. Right. Because we hadn't liked the shows. Right. The list went to New York. John Fairchild <laughs> loved people being naughty. Yeah. So he loved the idea of this. And so it appeared in the newspaper. And, of course, they pulled their advertising. Oh and God. so there then had to be a certain amount of on knees, cap in hand, <laughs> going back to Giorgio Armani going, we're so sorry, it was a typo kind of thing. I mean, I don't know quite how they explained it. We have a 19-year-old typist. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, oh, my God. But I, let's be honest, it was out. It was. It was really It out. was definitely really, really, really out. You know, obviously there have been a lot of changes in the way fashion's covered, changes in journalism in general in the last, uh, you know, 20 odd years that I've been doing it. So, you know, it's been sort of a lot to adjust to, but still, I think when it, when fashion collides with, you know, politics or uh, music or, you know, anything art, that those are the most exciting stories for me to write. You went on to work for 17 years for the LA Times and have been called one of the most, one of fashion's most, most respected journalists. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. What, what was your most meaningful moment there, time there, and how did you know it was time to leave? There were a lot of meaningful moments. A couple of stories, stories I did with Tom Ford were really meaningful because he brought a lot of respect to fashion in Los Angeles by, you know, eventually mm-hmm. ending up here. And I think that's really kind of the through line of everything that I've been, that I've been trying to do in my career is just to sort of bring respect to what happens out here. And, yeah. and, and that's been interesting to watch is just sort of the the opinion people have of Los Angeles and how that's changed and even how the culture and the city has changed. But, you know, I mean, I was covering Fashion Week here when 
it was like in back alleys and, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, weird shows and, and whatever. And, you know, then also when, you know, Dior came to have a cruise collection in Calabasas. So yeah. I think it's, it's been a, a wide span of things, but it did take a while. I mean, when I first started covering the shows in Europe, I had, I got in screaming matches with a couple of publicists who, you know, didn't want to give seats to the LA Times at shows. And (laughs) it was, you know, I had to sort of fight that battle for, for respect. And then, you know, sure enough, like a couple of years after that battle, the designer in question would be opening a store in Los Angeles, you know? So, (laughs) so yeah, it's been interesting to see that evolution and to kind of hopefully have been a bit of a part of it. The other thing that was really remarkable to me looking at all of the covers was how the industry went, you could really see it physically going from model driven to celebrity driven. Mm-hmm. What has that been like and how how did that affect your work? Well, it happened overnight. I mean, kind of overnight. It started to happen at Harper's Bazaar. You started to see the celebrities take hold. And then the first year that I was at Vogue, it was all the, the girls were still raining of yeah. the covers. I think that the first celebrity cover I did was actually Marion Jones, huh. the Olympic field yeah, tra- star. track and field. Yeah, yeah track and field. <laughs> and then it became kind of practically magical because you all of a sudden had a whole new audience that was picking up the magazine. A lot of the magazine was um, newsstand sales at that point. Right. And so you didn't just have the fashion interests picking up the magazine. You had the celebrity interests. And you had somebody who was watching a movie that was about to come out. And Julia Roberts was about to be in this. And, you know, so you had a whole new group that you were addressing. Mm -hmm. And it was a success right away. Adam Lippis, Tracy Feith, Lila Rose, and Nick Fouquet shared the highs and lows of this tough industry. You had a big moment with Adam Pussy. I had a big starts with an O. I had a big (laughs) moment. I was I was we had just started, we had just launched with a big department store. We were four. I was going back and forth between two offices and I was out in those days smoking a cigarette and came back in and I had a Chinese production director with a very thick accent. She says, Adam, Opa on phone. I'm like, what? Opa, okay. But you know, anyone who's calling, of course you want to talk to. <laughs> I picked it up and I said, hello. And she said, Adam. And I was like, oh, no. yes, it's Oprah. And I was like, oh, ma, oh. Uh, can you repeat your name? <laughs> Just to make sure I was yeah, not hallucinating. Right. And she said, it's Miss Winfrey. Um, uh, uh, I was just about to hang up. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm straight. Yeah, I've been on hold for seven minutes. And I was like, oh my God, you are such a star. You know, thank you so much. How can I help you? I'm wearing this t shirt. I think it's your t shirt. I'm obsessed with this t shirt. Can I have three dozen? Uh, here's my address. Here's my Amex. If I don't pay retail, I'll send them back. Wow. And anyhow, I hung up the phone and went into my little team of four and was like, you guys, that was Oprah on the phone. Because you don't know what you're doing. You're doing something right, yeah. wrong. Is it good? Is it not good? You're right. everything. You're so nervous. And it just meant the world to us. So I wrote her a love letter and slipped it in the package. Uh And she read it, and she had me on her show. Oh, my God. And it really changed the course of of the business. When Oprah happened and things started to roll, I was like, "Mm, I'm done. Fashion can spoil people very easily for some weird, weird reason. If you're not super grounded. Which you are. Thank you. I don't know. You are. Just try to be normal. (laughs) It can really spoil you. And I do see a period where... 
I can look sometimes someone sent me an interview I did or something, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> that wasn't me. Right. But it was a lot happening very, very fast. Yeah. So I moved to New York in 92, and I start doing what, you know, what you think you're supposed to do is uh, have fashion shows. You're supposed to play that game. Well, not a store yet, but I was, you know, I was having fashion shows and all that, and I was spending all of my own money. You know, it's like basically throwing parties, you know, because fashion shows are not, you know, this is like a, a big misconception that people aren't in the fashion business have is that you have fashion shows and that gives you notoriety which turns into money and business and dollars and that's not necessarily the case um i was killing myself you know i would be up for two weeks at a time getting getting a collection ready for shows and all of my friends living in my loft and tribeca camping out helping Mm -hmm. and after a couple years of that i mean i was just at the end of it i was just like yeah, I was invited to every single party, and I, everyone knew me, but I was, could barely pay my electricity bill. And what is this industry? You know, it's a, it's a tough industry. Yeah. The only people, I think you really get into it if you love it and if it's what you really feel. And I know you feel that way, too. It's just, it's, I say it all the time, it's just really not a hobby at all. No, it's not a hobby. <laughs> no. But it's, it's, you know, I can't... I look at my life, and I know that you do too, and I just think, wow, it's so hard day in, day out. It never gets easier, and I'm not kidding about that. It never gets easier. But it's also just been so much fun. I mean, there are days where I'm like, how did I get signed up for arts and crafts class (laughs) with gorgeous fabrics every single day? Like, It's the only thing I want to do. Yeah. The only thing. It's kind of amazing. And what's it been like running your own business? It's been like a real, how to explain it. Just do you sort sometimes of like, feel like you want to run off to Patagonia? Yeah, more like a visa. <laughs> I love it. You know, and I really wouldn't have it any other way, I realize. But, you know, when they say blood, sweat, and tears, it's like literally been all those things. I mean, I make things with my hands. Like, yeah. it's been, it's been, so it's like blood's been there, tears have been there, sweat. It's all been there and it's been challenging but so rewarding as yeah. well and i'm so so grateful and it's a practice and almost like it's just been like a spiritual practice you know i've like learned so much about myself absolutely and that's been been really interesting and it's been it's been making me push myself in places where like i'm kind of a very introverted person and so it's almost been like okay i'm not good at managing teams at all it's like learning okay you got you have to do this somebody's got to lila rose roxanda illinchich and jane scott hodges share their experiences as working mothers i've always told people i had prepartum depression (laughs) instead of postpartum depression yeah i don't think anything's changed my mom who was who is so forward thinking about everything except me (laughs) (laughs) was when I told her that I was pregnant and I hadn't really been trying to get pregnant. You know, I was married, but I was always like, Oh, kids are five years off, five years off, five years (laughs) off. And it would never get closer. But you know, I got pregnant pretty quickly and she was like, well, you're going to go part time, aren't you? And I was like, how does one go part-time when your name is on the door? Right. 
And I think, you know, she was always like, how are you going to raise this child and continue Mm -hmm. working? And I think that kind of a little bit freaked me out. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, well, I mean, I don't know. You know, the world is different today Mm -hmm. where you have all of these female entrepreneurs and they're talking about kids and there's, you know, such a difference and there's now all these breastfeeding rooms and there's just a lot more support. And I think back then, of course, there were women working and of course, you know, people had kids, but I think, you know, I felt, and I think it was self-inflicted, but I felt a lot of like judging that I wasn't going to quit or I was going to keep working and what was going to happen to this baby. And I think that's why I've always said I had prepartum depression because I was like, my life is not changing. Yeah. I am forging ahead. I don't want to pretend here, you know, that things were easy and often people don't tend to be utterly honest on this subject and I kind of took this stand that it's important to be honest (laughs) and to say that things are tough and that things are really really hard and particularly I felt when my daughter was was younger that to find that balance was almost impossible Mm -hmm. and I did feel that I'm failing as as a mom and as as somebody running her own business and you just kind of learn in time to find a certain balance. And I think that that balance is really the key of your happiness, of your family's family happiness as well, and of the prospect of your business too. Because mm. unless you are happy with what you're doing and achieving in both fields, they're both going to suffer or they're both going to thrive in a way. And I think it's always important to shift that balance sometimes to give more more time to family even when the business needs you and vice versa and and I think that you can very easily see if you're performing right or wrong just how happy your family is yeah and I kind of guess that's a priority yeah and also I think how proud they are of us I think yeah that's helpful to me to to at least absolutely showing her that uh, meaningful work is important to me and and hopefully will be important to her Yes. Well, I think we all just do what we have to do. And I think we all, you know, we're just in the moment and doing it. Mm -hmm. And we don't even realize what it all means, right? I think that the gift of it is indeed showing them, you know, what we can do. Tracy Feith, Marie Helinda Tyak, and Tani Goodman taught us lessons on life and meaning. You know, when people are authentic at what they do, mm. they they do what they do through all the periods, whether they're super successful mm. or they are not. I feel like I was born to do this. I, I can't quite put it into words, but I, I just love it. And I love the process of making clothes. I love to see people in them. I don't know. I just, I, I love the craft of it as well as the uh, kind of creativity that can happen. Mm. It, it's not always evident in, in everyone's clothes, obviously, but I think the best clothes are a combination of technique, proportion, and eye, and fit, and uh, tactile quality. So I, I really think that is whether it's in music or art or you know as a designer, it's like it's the people who are the greats are the ones that they do it no matter what. Yeah, because that's what they're born to do. 
I think I'm the first generation where a woman are confident enough to buy their own jewelry, which is so unusual. I mean, that that's a and that's a completely different category than ever existed before, don't you think? Yeah, that 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 makes a huge difference in the choice. My jewelry is very understated, yeah. and it's very much a, a personal pleasure. There's no social status attached to my work. Yeah. Um, so it's very much a choice of a person for themselves. I think when men choose jewelry, very uh, often it's to show power. Mm. And uh, they want to show that they're very powerful and that their beautiful wife is wearing an amazing piece of jewelry. That, that they the, had this job that could have, you know, could yeah, afford, right? That they could afford, yes, yeah. yes. The clients who wear my work or the husband of the client who wear my work, they understand it's for the pleasure of every day. Mm. And when you wear a beautiful stone, I'm going back to the colored stone, which I love so much. Uh, it changes every day. It changes with the, the light, the daylight, the night light, the weather. It connects you constantly back to nature. Mm. I think for me, I always say that the, the, the gemstone are, are the stars uh, of this earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we need, uh, especially in the modern world that we live in, which is so disconnected, we need to be connected to nature. And I, I'm connected to nature when I have flowers. Flowers, you know, mm. flowers. I always say that, that if I have TV or flowers, I watch the flowers. <laughs> uh, bird is another thing. Yeah. And the other thing is a gemstone. And, and this is like a instant spiritual connection and a reminder that we are actually a part of something much bigger and very beautiful. One of the things you've said to me, you said recently in Charlotte, was to trust mistakes, mm -hmm. which I loved so much because I'd never heard it that simply. You know, it's always, you, know, you always hear sort of like a longer version of that, but trust mistakes was just, I thought, the clearest and, and best. Well, it's also, it's such a good lesson yeah. because, you know, they come, they come at you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, avoid, you can't escape them. They just, they just come at you. And if you don't dodge them. <laughs> But you, you know, embrace them, then you can be so wonderfully surprised by what comes, what comes next. We hope you'll join us next season for What We Wore. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.